Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to another healing conversation brought to you by AcousticHealth.com. My name is Loren Gailey, and today we're talking with Nick Pope, author, journalist, and TV personality. He's interesting because he used to run the British government's UFO project, and he is now one of the world's leading experts on UFOs, the unexplained, and conspiracy theories. His books include science fiction novels, Operation Thunderchild, and Operation Lightning Strike. And his website is nickpope.net. That website will give you much more information on all of Nick's research. Welcome, Nick. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be on the show. You worked with the Ministry of Defense for 21 years or so, and for three years you ran the British government's UFO project. Now, all of those files, as I understand, have been declassified and released to the National Archives. And I think it's interesting because at first, before you started this work, you were skeptical before you did your research and your investigations. And you say, out of that research, in a nutshell, that 80% of the UFO sightings that you investigated are misidentified objects, ordinary objects like airplanes, satellites, and such. 15% of those cases have insufficient information to draw any conclusions from, and the 5% of the sightings, 5% of the sightings seem to defy conventional explanation. So, Nick, tell us what those would be. That's the exciting part. Yes. Well, of course, I think it's important for me to start by saying that, of course, what I'm not saying is that those unexplained UFOs, that 5%, figure are alien spacecraft. On the other hand, um, I can't rule out that possibility, and of course that's, that's the point. What I'm really saying is that these are genuinely unknown um, objects or phenomena. Something is in our airspace. Uh, sometimes they're seen by pilots, tracked on radar, uh, performing speeds and maneuvers that seem to go significantly ahead of anything that we can do. And, yeah, my, my question is, I, I'm not, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not one of these people that's, that's going to come onto your show and say, you know what, I've got all the answers, here they are. <laughs> I, I've actually got questions about this myself, and the bottom line is I don't know what it is. But it's interesting, and it's worthy of our, our serious scientific study, I believe. Thank you for dedicating your life to this subject matter. I want to ask, on a personal level, perhaps a spiritual level, where do you stand today on UFOs or extraterrestrials, beings from other places in the universe? I think, uh, like many people, uh, and an increasing number of scientists, I'm very much of the view that it would be inconceivable in this infinite universe for us to be the only life. So I'm convinced that there's life elsewhere in the universe, uh, and probably a lot of it. I'm also convinced, simply because intelligence seems a fairly logical um, strategy for, for any life to survive and evolve. I mean, it's, it's, you know, some, you look at evolution here on Earth, some things got fast, 
some got strong, uh, we got smart, and it's a pretty good survival strategy. So one would have to say that if the universe is full of life, it's also reasonably uh, logical that quite a lot of that life would would be intelligent life. So yeah, I am, I've got no problem whatsoever with the idea of intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, and I think, and perhaps we'll go on to talk about this, I, I think that we'll find the evidence of that, certainly within 10 or 20 years. Whether they are visiting us, whether given some of the physics that people talk about um, in terms of light speed being a barrier, though there may be ways around that, but whether we're being visited, I don't know. Life out there, yes. Life visiting us, not sure. What would you think would be one of your favorite case mysteries that you investigated? Two spring to mind. Um, I'll start with the one that I led the investigation on at the time. This was 1993, so it was midway through my tour of duty on the UFO project. And I um, came into work one morning uh, March 31st, the phones were ringing off the hook. I grabbed one. It was a police officer. He proceeded to tell me about a, a sighting, put the phone down, rang again, another police officer from a different part of the country. And it transpired as, as the day, and indeed the next few days, uh, went on. I was able to piece together this picture of an extraordinary wave of sightings that had occurred for a period of around six hours. Um, on the night in question. Many of the witnesses had been police officers, some had been military personnel. Consistently what they were describing was a huge triangular shaped craft, moving very slowly at first, but then sometimes capable of incredible speed. I remember one Air Force officer told me that he saw this thing in the early hours of the morning coming towards the base very, very slowly. He said it was probably 200 feet above the ground, something like that. He said this thing was massive, the size of an aircraft. I mean, a commercial aircraft, like a Boeing 747. And he said this object was firing a narrow beam of light down at the ground that was tracking backwards and forwards as if it was looking for something. Then he said all of a sudden, the light beam flipped off and this thing just accelerated away to the horizon. Now, this is a man in the Air Force who sees military jets and helicopters almost every day. And he said this was orders of magnitude above and beyond any speed or acceleration he'd ever seen in his life. So it, it was an extraordinary case. Um, I, we could probably devote the whole show just to that case. And indeed, it, it, it's, it's one of those UFO incidents that has sustained at least two or three full one-hour television documentaries. Let, let me just mention one other very weird fact about this case, which I thought was interesting. One of the civilian witnesses described how they'd seen this thing over a field, and when they, when they got to the field, they said that um, there were a whole bunch of cows in the field, and they were standing in a perfect circle in the middle of the field, all facing each other, absolutely silent. Uh, just after this, this UFO had been seen overhead. So, <laughs> a very, very strange X-File. I know what some in the 
spiritual metaphysical world would have to say about that. Cows, what, what would they say? Even cows would have intelligence and that they're beings as well. So there was probably some communication with the cows. Right. That's an interesting tidbit. Very interesting. So you go and you investigate these. Have you seen a UFO yourself? I've never seen a thing. Um, it's quite, quite disappointing in a sense. I suppose after after years of researching and investigating other people's sightings, it would be rather nice to have had one myself. Um, but it's never happened. Still, you know, you never know. Uh, maybe even later today, you know, you never know when these things are going to happen. And it's incredible. When I talk to witnesses, some of them uh, say to me, oh, I never believed in this, I thought it was all a load of nonsense, I've never seen a thing, and then suddenly they have this encounter that has this transformative effect on their life. But uh, no, nothing so far, but uh, I live in hope. Right, and you know, there are some that say you can call them in, so watch the skies, and you never know. I myself had a very interesting experience January 18th of 2009. It was cigar shaped and if I held my hand out and held my fingers, my thumb and my index finger apart, that's what, four to six inches? Yeah. That's the, how big this was in the sky and it was a series of rectangles all lined up and they would just illuminate. They would blink on for less than two seconds and blink off. Both my husband and I saw it, and our knees would shake, and we would watch for it again, and then a few seconds later it would do it again. And as it grew in size, we didn't see it move, but as it grew in size, we saw a second row of lights, those same orangish-yellow lights in the shape of rectangles. And where I'm going with this is I believe more and more people will see things, and we need to get over the fear, because is there anything to fear, and is this fear what governments are afraid of and why they don't disclose more information? Well, I think that when you look at the whole mindset of the military, the government, the intelligence agencies, and that was a world, of course, that I lived in for 21 years, um, in one respect, yes, the default position is to look at something like this as a potential defense issue. Uh, some national security breach, something like that. Um, and after all, there are perhaps some good reasons for, for taking that view, because some activity in our airspace might turn out to be terrorist-related, and some might turn out to be related to espionage. So that's, that's the mindset that the government and the Air Force will have when looking at this. Now, it's not necessarily the correct mindset, and there's very, very few UFO cases uh, that I can think of where anything has occurred, uh, certainly on the part of the UFOs, that could be deemed hostile. Uh, there are one or two occasions where perhaps we've taken hostile action, and indeed there are three very well-known cases where pilots either opened fire or attempted to open fire on a UFO. Uh, Parviz Jafari, Iran, 1976, um, uh, Oscar Huertas, Peru, 1980, and Milton Torres, actually a USAF pilot, but uh, 
the encounter was over England in 1957. Uh, and in all of those cases, shoot-down orders were given. Now, in the case of Milton Torres, the UFO accelerated away before he got to a position where he was able to fire. In the case of Parviz Jafari, his weapons control panel um, was, was suddenly rendered inoperational for, for some reason. And in the case of Oscar Huertas, while he opened fire with a machine cannon, he said that the rounds, while he was convinced he'd hit the thing, had no effect at all. He said it was as if they were absorbed. Do you think they travel in the dimensions, in a dimensional level? Well, that's certainly one of the theories that's doing the rounds, and of course it would explain some of the anomalies that one hears about in relation to UFOs. But I suppose it, it often occurs to me that with the UFO mystery, particularly when you look at the variety that, that, that exists within the phenomenon, both in terms of the uh, shapes and sizes of the UFOs, but also their behavior. It seems to me that it's most unlikely that there is one single neat solution to this mystery. It may well be that there are many, many different things going on, all of which would fall into the category of exotic. I, I mean, there is, for example, nothing you know, to rule out the possibility that some of these UFOs are extraterrestrial, some are interdimensional, uh, some might be intertemporal. These, these solutions, these theories aren't somehow mutually exclusive. You are coming from a hard fact background. You're a researcher. You're, you're proving that at least 5% of the work that you've researched and the UFO cases that you've researched are indeed something of a mystery. But what it is, I see, is more of a blending of science. It's science that's coming up with the facts that a spiritual world has been saying from all along. We've got the Mayans and we've got the pyramids that have referred to this extraterrestrial contact. So I think it's very interesting, these times that we're living in, where we do have something called convergence. I'm sure you're familiar with David Wilcock. Yes, indeed. I, it, it certainly is interesting that when one looks at, I suppose, areas of science such as quantum mechanics and quantum physics, one, one could easily draw a parallel with the spiritual world in some of those sorts of areas. And indeed, some of the fringe science, um, for example, some of the things that people are talking about in relation to the Large Hadron Collider and other big experiments, we're now talking about things like uh, other dimensions, uh, antimatter, dark matter, looking into the, the secrets of the beginning of the universe. And, and when science is using that kind of language, which it is now, and it wasn't five or ten years ago, yes, maybe, maybe there is this coming together of, of things. I know there's some that believe we are surrounded by other beings from various places throughout the universe, what you said with the number of cases, there's not any cases that would show a streak of violence towards the U.S., but the U.S. fires on the UFOs. Now that goes back to a question of intelligence, and many believe that 
extraterrestrials are more intelligent and that they're here to help us awaken again into our higher intelligence. Yes, I can't fault the logic of, of certainly the idea that if we are being visited by extraterrestrials, then it seems to me almost self-evident that their technology is significantly ahead of, of ours, and therefore they must be more involved, uh, evolved, um, certainly intellectually and maybe spiritually as well. I mean, it's, it's the old rule of thumb. If they find you, as opposed to you finding them, uh, their technology is, is obviously better. So, yeah, I, I can't... I can't fault that. Let, I just wanted to backtrack, actually, and to, to pick up a point that you uh, made right at the top of the show. Um, you, you mentioned that all the British government's UFO files have been declassified and released. They're, we haven't released all of them yet. The process has started. Indeed, many old files from the 50s and the 60s in the 70s had been at our national archives for some years what happened was that in 2007 right at the end of the year the ministry of defense decided that it was going to release all the files that process started in may 2008 but it's not yet complete and indeed it's not anticipated that it will be complete until 2011 so there are still going to be further batches of files released here in the UK and each time there's a batch of these files released of course there's a big media cycle about this so watch this space why is there a delay is there someone going over those files and reviewing them first and why is there a secrecy I think it comes back to the basic mindset particularly I mean of, of government but particularly in a an inherently secretive organization like the Ministry of Defense. The default position is say nothing unless you have to. Well, now, of course, that's changed because of our Freedom of Information Act, which, interestingly, is comparatively new in the UK as opposed to in the US. But, um, yeah, the, the bottom line is that certainly people of my generation who were recruited into the organization long before a Freedom of Information Act was even really being seriously discussed, let alone enacted. Our, our thought was anything we were working on uh, wouldn't come out, if indeed it came out at all, until long after we'd retired. So it's the culture of the organization, in a sense, that you're pushing against, that you're fighting against. The new generation of recruits, certainly those brought in after our Freedom of Information Act may have a, a different perspective on things, but uh, that, that's the reason. But yes, to go back to your first question, yes, there, there absolutely is somebody going through and reviewing all of this material before it's, it's being released. Now, not necessarily for any sinister reasons. Largely, what's taking a long time, of course, is... Um, in, the, in terms of the public reports, is blacking out the names and addresses of witnesses because of their personal privacy issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, there are exemptions to the Freedom of Information Act covering other areas such as defense and national security. Now, very often that might be nothing more sinister than just blacking out information that 
for example, might disclose the capability of a military radar system. Um, it's not hiding. I, I think people, when they see these blacked-out documents, sort of think that if they could see the original, that it would somehow say, we've got a crashed spaceship in a hangar here in England. And I saw those files, and we don't. Or at least if, if we do, they didn't, they didn't tell me. It's mostly just sightings and such. Well, by volume, yes. Most of it is sighting reports. The really interesting papers, though, are the policy discussions where the ministry tries to get to grips with what this phenomenon might be, um, how to handle it in the media and with the public. Um, and, and, of course, there are good sightings in the cases, but, you know, sometimes it's like that old adage, the best place to hide a book is in a library. Uh, you've got to go through tens of thousands of pages, um, you know, and, and every, every few hundred pages you'll find something good, but, but most of it is just someone out walking their dog at night and seeing a light in the sky, which is probably just the planet Venus. But the good stuff is in there, too. Don't worry. It's, it's there. Now, David Wilcock and Richard Hoagland, New Paradigm Thinkers, claim disclosure will come about. Disclosure from what? Disclosure that there are ETs, and it's disclosure by the governments in the world. What are your thoughts on that? The question, I suppose, takes as its absolute assumption the fact that there is some something to disclose and I'm, I'm you know I'm not so sure what if the answer is actually that the government is just as mystified about this as everyone else and really doesn't know for sure what this is now that's not a popular view in some parts of the UFO community and and because I don't subscribe to it I'm sometimes accused particularly because of my government background of, of being part of the problem or part of the cover-up um, disinformation uh, agent or whatever. No, hand on heart, I, I don't know what there is to disclose. I'm, my only, I guess my problem with this is that, you know, we, we keep hearing these, these predictions and mm. sometimes dates are given, sometimes they're not. Often we're told it's imminent and, and, and then it's not. And, and, you know, where the dates are given, they pass without anything happening and people just go on to the next one. And this, this sort of thing, I mean, I, I'm afraid to say that if one looks at the history of ufology, that sort of thing has been going on really for decades. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, it, it would certainly be fascinating, of course it would be fascinating if it happened, um, but I have no information to suggest that it will happen, and, you know, I, I'm not so sure. Well, that is you proving that you are an open-minded journalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm... I'm I'm saying I don't know. In a, I'm not having a go at people, but it does seem to me that this field is full, and all, full of an awful lot of people who are absolutely certain of what's going on and what's going to happen. And I'm, I'm the guy that did this for the government, and I'm saying, no, I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm not sure what's going on. I don't think anyone does, but it's an exciting time, that's for sure. It certainly is. Now, have you interviewed anyone who's been abducted? Any cases? Oh, yes, indeed, yes. Um, it, it was quite impossible to uh, be involved in 
investigating UFOs for the government without finding all sorts of other things uh, that are perceived to be linked to this coming in. So yes, uh, abduction reports. We didn't get as many at the Ministry of Defense as, as one might have expected. And I think the reason for that is, is largely because um, I, I think if people fear that they might be ridiculed or disbelieved or accused of wasting government time reporting a UFO, they're even more inclined to think that in relation to alien abductions. The other reason, of course, is, and I've spoken to a lot of people who've, who've put it to me in this terms, they, they say, what's the point in reporting to an organization that knows all about this anyway? Um, mm. Because, of course, a lot of the people in this field do think that we know all about it and they're covering it up. So, uh, but I got some, going, going back to the question, yes, I certainly got some reports at the Ministry of Defense. And after I left the UFO project and became more involved in this field in a private capacity, because my view was this was just too interesting and important to walk away from, uh, I, I began to get much more um, abduction reports coming my way. And then indeed one of my four books, the Uninvited is just completely devoted to the abduction mystery and indeed features a, a number of cases that I looked at personally. So yes, it's a, I most certainly looked at it and it's a fascinating aspect to all of this. Please share one of the most interesting or a couple of the interesting stories on that. What happens? What does it feel like for people? What do they see? Well, it's interesting and again, Maybe there's not one neat solution to any of this, but uh, one of the most fascinating cases that I came across was of a woman who, together with a friend, was driving a car. Actually, she's, she's British, but at the time she was living in um, Los Angeles. And um, they saw a UFO. Um, they then had what's known as a period of missing time, where effectively um, they found there was a sort of disconnect. It, it was as if um, when they got back, it was later than they thought, and yet, you know, there was no explanation for what had happened in that time. Now, she was subsequently hypnotically regressed, which is controversial in, in some quarters, but you know, that's that's the road that she went down. And she recalled, uh, under hypnotic regression, that she was actually taken from the car um, into the, the UFO, encountered the archetypal uh, aliens that, that you see a lot of images of on, on the internet, the short spindly ones with the large heads and the huge black almond-shaped eyes, and that they tried to hold out and present her with this hybrid human-alien uh, baby, um, as if they were trying to get her to bond with it. Uh, so it was an absolutely, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, I'm distilling a case that I have a huge file on um, into just a, a, a few minutes. There are many more uh, fascinating aspects to this woman's story, and, and that encounter was just one of a number of extraordinary incidents that have occurred to her in the course of her life. I mean, these, these things, it's interesting, the UFO sightings um, can be one-offs, although there are repeater witnesses, but the 
induction phenomenon does seem to be something that recurs. You're saying one-off as when someone sees a, a UFO sighting, they see it usually just once. It's not like a repeated. Yes, what I mean is that uh, there are many, many UFO witnesses who have just seen one in, in the course of their lives. Okay. So there are some people who almost seem to attract these things. Um, but with the abductees, when you look at them, there seems to be a pattern of strange experiences and encounters. Um, I've seldom come across somebody who claims to have had one and only one abduction experience. In these experiences, are they mainly coming from a love sense, a feeling of harmony and peace, or is there any cases with agitation and uneasy feelings? It's a mixture. Um, now, that may well be because the nature of the experience varies. Alternatively, it may have something to do with how the um, person involved perceives it. It may be a mixture of those two, but it is interesting. One, one can certainly, and again, I'm not the only one to notice this huge spectrum of, of experiences. Uh, one can easily go out in the literature and look, for example, uh, at the work of someone like Bud Hopkins and Dave Jacobs and find that a huge amount of cases that they've come across seem to be intrusive, uh, distressing, sometimes painful. Um, when you look at the work of people like John Mack and others, you, you find quite the opposite. You find that, that these are spiritual encounters, um, that, that they're very, very different in perspective. Now, maybe that's got something to do with the witness, the experiencer. Maybe it's got something to do with the investigator. Uh, maybe it's because different things are going on. I mean, as, as I said earlier in relation to UFOs, there may not be one neat mystery to this. Uh, to, pardon me, one neat solution uh, to, to this. And, and of course, many people have speculated, well, what if it's not, <laughs> if this is extraterrestrial, what if it's not just one race, but uh, two or more with differing agendas. So all sorts of possibilities out there. But yeah, going back to the core question, uh, I've come across the, the range. The, it's across the spectrum from frightening and, and intrusive and painful through to loving and spiritual and enlightened. From your research, it almost sounds like we're talking Star Trek here. And what I love about you, Nick, is that you are really that journalist walking the fine line between all of these conspiracy theories and the military and the government and the critics and the skeptics, but you're so open-minded and you're investigating all of it. And so when you've got your research and you go and write these science fiction novels, it really is like Star Trek. Well, I just thought it would be interesting, given that I'd worked in the Ministry of Defense, given that I'd been involved in the, the UFO project, but also in more conventional uh, war fighting work in, in relation to, for example, during the first Gulf War, I was a, a briefer in the Air Force Operations Room in the Joint Operations Center. And I just thought, well, it would be interesting for me as a writer, ha having written one book on UFOs and one on alien abductions. I didn't want to be just 
churning out the same material and I, I wanted to do something very different and I thought it might be interesting for me as a writer and, and hopefully for my readers too to combine those two areas in other words what I know about defense and war fighting with what I know about UFOs and abductions so of course I went to that hugely cliched idea of writing effectively an alien invasion scenario only what I decided to come up with um, which which is interesting given what we've been talking about and the theme of of our conversation is getting away from this idea of evil aliens and benevolent earth people and things like that and blurring the lines a little bit um, I didn't want to make anything entirely black and white so I, I wanted and, and it's interesting given that of course the same um, sorts of discussions about who the good guys are is, is a discussion that's now playing out in relation to the movie Avatar but uh, I wanted to, to blur the lines so that's that's what I did I wrote a an alien invasion novel but it's it's not quite as simple as that and I wanted to make people think about some moral issues um, and some environmental issues and uh, a whole bunch of things and the, the books did reasonably well and I'm, I'm hoping given that sci-fi is pretty popular right now um, I'm hoping still that they're going to be picked up by a TV or film production company and made into either a, a miniseries or a, a movie and there has been some interest in that so yeah let's wait and see let me ask you about the Norway Blue Spiral December 9th 2009 over the skies of Norway there was a blue spiral light this was amazing we had people saying it was a failed rocket launch from Russia other people are saying it was harp or CERN Others from the metaphysical world say it's like the apotheosis and it was a sign from the heavens or somewhere else in the universe. What is your take on it? When I saw it, of course, whatever it is, it, it was quite a beautiful thing to behold. And I think one sometimes in, in our eagerness to explain things, we forget the more fundamental thing. That it's actually a beautiful thing to look at, whatever it is. Um, so that was my start point. And I, when I heard about this Russian missile theory that the Russian missile test had, um, that the missile had gone out of control, I, something about that didn't quite strike me as being ringing true, as it were. Um, firstly, it seemed way too symmetrical. I mean, yeah, I've, I've seen missiles go out of control, and, and sometimes they go around in a bit of a circle, but I haven't seen anything quite like this. The other point is, is that, particularly with advanced new missiles, where you certainly don't want that technology falling into um, other hands, almost every missile um, system in existence has an auto-destruct mechanism, whereby if something was to go wrong, um, both because you might fear losing the technology or you might fear killing people on, on the ground, you, you would actually f destruct the thing automatically. So I'm not convinced this was a, a Russian missile, although that seems to have been generally accepted uh, now by the mainstream media. So as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's still a mystery. 
many people see think of it as a wormhole. Yes, I've I've seen I've seen theories like that, and you know it's it's interesting because just a month or two before that story broke, there was of course the the story about the um, mysterious halo shaped cloud um, in over Moscow. Um, so again, whatever these things are. Some some people say, of course, that these these are signs, but signs of what we don't know. There's signs that the Earth itself is changing. There's some that believe that it's a new vibration for Earth herself. When you were mentioning the the government has the story, the official story in the media that this was the failed Russian missile. Well, when we take a look at it and we see, isn't it pretty obvious that that itself is a cover up? The government is using the rocket missile story, the failed missile launch, as a, as a cover-up. And then that leads to the next question, why are they covering that up? I don't necessarily know that this was a deliberate cover-up. It, it may well be that, again, the mindset of people in the establishment, the government, the military, is we must find a conventional explanation. It doesn't necessarily mean that they know some great truth that they're keeping from us, but I think these people like like to be very rational and their default position is skeptical. So they will take an idea and sometimes they'll try and shoehorn it into the, the circumstance and sometimes, of course, it doesn't fit. Now, whether that's a deliberate cover-up or whether it's just the way a lot of people like that think and act, I don't know. But what, what I will say is this. What governments are uncomfortable about, certainly, is saying we don't know. The whole business, the whole ethos of government is about power and control um, and showing that they are in absolute authority. Mm. I mean, so much of, of society, of course, depends on a government imposing its authority on, on others. That's what they, they do. So no government, no military likes to say we don't know. Um, no, no air force likes to say, well, you know, yeah, there are strange things in the skies. They're faster than us. We can't catch them. Occasionally we track them on radar. Sometimes pilots see them, but no, no idea. Now, that's not a position that government and military is comfortable with. So it's much easier to, to just say, well, it was probably just, you know, this or that. In the beginning, we were talking about a couple of your favorite cases that intrigued you the most. Is there another one that uplifts your heart about where we're going in the future? Well, I'm not sure this would uplift my heart, but it, it, it would be, I think, remiss of me to come on the show and not mention at least uh, Britain's most famous UFO case, the Bentwaters incident. Mm -hmm. uh, not least because 2010 marks the 30th anniversary of this. Now, there's talk of a reunion of, of some of the witnesses. There's talk of a, a movie. Um, there are probably going to be a whole bunch of new documentaries about the case. Uh, this happened in December 1980 at the bases of um, United States Air Force bases in England called Bentwaters and Woodbridge. And the encounter itself took place in Rendlesham Forest. Although, of course, I, I hadn't even joined the ministry at the time, in 1994, I undertook a cold case review 
of, of this incident. It was absolutely fascinating. Um, I mean, this was a case, not lights in the sky, but a metallic craft on the ground, which one of the witnesses got close enough to touch. And what, what was particularly interesting, and um, uh, you, you can see this on my website, there's a page called Rendlesham Forest, where I talk about this, this case. Um, what's, what's fascinating is that on the side of this craft, he saw and indeed sketched strange symbols, which at first he likened to Egyptian hieroglyphs. But that's a fascinating uh, aspect. Again, we could do a whole show on this case alone. I mean, this was a multiple witness event. The witnesses included the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, uh, who in his own words went out um, to debunk this UFO nonsense because this occurred over a period of at least two nights. So when the UFO returned on a subsequent night, he went out, he said, I'm going to debunk this nonsense. And he ended up seeing the UFO himself. Um, an absolutely extraordinary case. And one where there was some very interesting physical evidence too. In not, not just the sketches that we've got of the UFO and the symbols, but holes in the ground, indentations where this thing was um, on legs of, of some sort. And they ran a Geiger counter over that. And the defense intelligence staff here in the UK assessed the radiation levels as significantly higher than background. Uh, so an extraordinary case with multiple witnesses, including senior military personnel, and physical trace evidence to suggest something extraordinary uh, had indeed landed. And, and that's what makes this particularly extraordinary, of course. It's not lights in the sky, it's a craft on the ground. And you said earlier that he saw symbols that were Greek symbols. He said at first he thought that. Did he change his mind on that? This was his initial view, but I think if you look at the, the symbols, as I say, they're on my website and they're fairly widely available on the internet on a whole bunch of sites. I, I think mm -hmm. it's more a question of just saying, well, my first view might be they were like Egyptian hieroglyphs, but mm. looking at them again, no, they're, they're really something quite new. So, are there any conspiracy theories that you've researched that intrigue you the most? Well, I confess to being fairly uh, skeptical about conspiracy theories. Um, I've certainly looked into quite a few, and, and I've yet to be convinced. I mean, when you look, for example, at people who say, we didn't go to the moon, there are a number of fairly good scientific things that you can do to prove otherwise, um, not least because they left a big reflecting mirror up there, and many, many scientists all around the world use this to fire a laser um, backwards and forwards to, to measure the exact distance from the Earth to the moon, plus the fact that the moon rocks that have been brought back are, are clearly according to a huge range of, of scientists. Um, you know, well, moon rocks, they're, they're non-terrestrial. There are differences in terms of isotopes and, and such like. So that, that, to me, I'm not a great believer in conspiracy theories. But if, if we do have time for one more point, what I'd uh, I perhaps like to make is, is a point which I hinted at earlier about why I think that within 10 or 20 years, we'll resolve certainly the question of are we alone or not in the universe? Um, maybe not the question of are we being visited, 
but it's going to be the construction of the square kilometre array radio telescope. Now, of course, we're using all sorts of radio telescopes at the moment to listen to signals from extraterrestrial civilizations. I haven't found anything yet, but this new telescope, um, which is going to take years to build, uh, probably not fully operational until about 2024, but when it is, many scientists in the field believe that if there are civilizations within 100 light years of Earth, and there are thousands of stars within that, that distance, uh, they say we'll find them. So I think this is a hugely exciting period of time. Um, and of course, we've already seen, um, for example, the Vatican make some quite extraordinary statements about extraterrestrial life and, and, and indeed civilization and saying that if such a thing is found it's not in any way contrary to church doctrine now of course some people say well they must know something I, I just think they're being smart and covering all the bases maybe before the square kilometer array is, is fully up and running I don't know exciting times these are very exciting times and scholars of the Bible even identify several episodes within the Bible of E.T. contact, Ezekiel Chariot. Yes, absolutely, yes. Um, one, one can hardly, when one reads that particular chapter in the book of Ezekiel, avoid the comparison between the landing of a UFO and the encountering uh, with extraterrestrials. And then, as you say, the, the phrase, the very phrase, chariots of fire, of course, um, and several other passages, too. Yes, it, it's, and of course, the Bible isn't the only... Um, ancient or religious text to contain such such references. Um, there are many many things from our history that that certainly make make you wonder and and think. Well, goodness, doesn't that sound a little bit like a UFO sighting? What are you working on for your next book? Well, I, at the moment, I'm not working on any books. Um, they take about a year to do and at the moment what I'm really concentrating on is doing a lot of television work um, both on UFOs on the unexplained on conspiracy theories and indeed on fringe science um, I do quite a lot of work on, on some fringe science subjects like uh, invisibility and weather control and, and things like that so I'm pretty pretty much backed up with television work at the moment but I'll continue to do my best whether it's through TV or or radio or whatever to to really keep this subject in the public eye and and to keep people interested and keep keep the debate going and if I can contribute to that process then then I'll do so it's funny how you might find yourself going down that rabbit hole and it may lead you to the mystic arts as you just mentioned invisibility and so again it's it's just further proof and you as that research journalist are going for it and that in itself is helping the world awaken so thank you so much for that do you have any parting comments about the next couple of years here well i i don't really know what's going to happen but i certainly it looks as if ufo sightings are uh, increasing in number there seems to be more and more discussion about it whether that means that we're building up to something or or whether it's just that there is um, just a, a 
growing swell of interest in this fascinating subject? I don't know. So I'm going to make, I suppose, the safest prediction I can, <laughs> which is always, I think, the vaguest one, and, and just say simply, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm sure the next couple of years are going to be very interesting. Yeah, so everyone, let's please make sure we hold the highest visions for ourselves and our families and the people who surround us in our lives. We need to move away from fear. Whatever goes on in our environment, choose to be with emotions of love rather than fear. When we do that, we can create that world. We can be the change we wish to see in the world as Gandhi said so eloquently. And when we talk UFOs, that could be frightening for some, especially if someone has never seen one and they come across one. Uh, I can't fault the, the idea of approaching any of this with a, a positive attitude. It seems, it seems by far the best approach to take whatever the, the nature of what's going on, um, to approach something in a, a positive way is, is always, I think, the best approach. Well, thank you, Nick Pope, and your website, nickpope.com, where all of your books and your information and research can be found. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Now I'd like to leave you with music from the universe. This music is actually created by the universe. Computer musician and composer Phil Windsor assigned musical notes to mathematical equations and this is the result it's truly music from the universe available at AcousticHealth.com listen enjoy love and be thank you